Amen. Good morning, church. My name is Pastor Chris. I'm the student ministries pastor here at B at Harvest. So thank you for joining us this morning. And um, I am the messenger this morning. Would you would you turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor? Merry Christmas. It's time. It's happening. It's December. Showtime, y'all. It's December. Christmas songs are on the radio since what? Thanksgiving, at least. Some of them like after Halloween. Is that wrong? Like, I know I'm not here to start a fight about when they should be on the radio, but I know that I could if I wanted to. Um, there are some Christmas songs. I like hearing them, you know, walking through the store or like all the time in the car. I, I enjoy hearing a good Christmas song. Um, there are some Christmas songs that I just think the Christmas season could do without, you know? Like, I, I like most of the classics, you know, uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, the Bruce Springsteen version, the nice saxophone solo. I love Sleigh Ride. I was like in an, it's a, it's a concert band where we played Sleigh Ride, a great song. I love A Merry Did You Know, Silent Night, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I love the classics. Some of the uh, unsung heroes of the Christmas songs, Dominic the Donkey. What a great, what a good one. Yes. Hee-haw, hee-haw, right? <laughs> I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Ah, oh, some good, good songs. I'm a fan of Happy Birthday, Jesus. Um, my wife is not, so I just sing it all December. <laughs> Happy birthday. So uh, for some, you know, some of these songs, like, I just can't stand some Christmas songs. Now, I know Taylor Swift has been through a lot lately, um, but can we just agree last Christmas has got to go? That song, I've had enough of it. I did a little research, and I found she didn't even do it first. I didn't realize this. Um, the, the band Wham did it first. I listened, and their version, you know what? Extremely tolerable. Very much, much better. Taylor Swift's Get It Off of the Radio. I just, no thank you. And I hesitate to bring up uh, Baby It's Cold Outside because of what's happening in Hollywood and stuff, but can we just agree that song's really creepy? <laughs> Baby It's Cold Outside? Like, Almost every version I've heard is like very, very beautiful, really, really well done. But like, no means no, man. Move on. (laughs) Right? And I've ruined that song for some of you. And I'm glad. I'm on a mission to ruin that song for everyone. (laughs) I don't know a single person in the world who likes the song Christmas Shoes. You know that song? So I want to buy these shoes. I I, I thought about playing it, but I didn't want to put you through that. It's... That song, man, if you don't know the song, there's a guy standing in line and he's going to buy some Christmas presents. And there's a little boy in front of him who's buying shoes for his, for his dying mother. And he doesn't have enough money. And so he turns around to the guy and guilts the guy into paying for the shoes. And if you don't believe me, the line of the song says, tell me, sir, what am I going to do? Well, that guy had a choice. Of course he has to pay for the shoes now. But maybe I'm being a little harsh. And like, who wants to hear that? Like, I, I love generosity. Don't be consumed by consumerism this time of year. But can we just get rid of that song? I just, I don't want to hear that sad song about it. This time of year is really interesting. And uh, that's because people all over the nation, some that have never stepped foot in a church, don't give a hoot about God, are singing about the birth of Jesus all of a sudden. <laughs> right? I'm not mad about it. They can sing all they want. Like, that's cool. I just think it's a, an interesting cultural phenomenon that this happens every year. And this is the only time of year that we're, the whole nation is singing, singing hymns together, <laughs> right? We don't sing a lot of hymns to begin with, but we are all Christmas, the whole country, we're singing hymns together. It's, a, it's just an interesting thing. And people come to church around Christmas 
or on Christmas, whether it's because it's the tradition, it's just what we do every year, or if it's to make mom or grandma happy for the year, right? Um, whatever reason, I think people come into church on uh, Christmas season with genuine questions, whether they want to be there or not. Everybody has spiritual questions. So they come in with genuine questions about these people come here every week and talk about this Jesus fella. What, what's the big deal about this Jesus guy anyway? And so I think this is the one day of the year, one season of the year where people are motivated enough to be receptive and maybe hear some answers about what's the big deal about Jesus. So this morning we are launching our series called Heaven's Champion, Jesus, the Father's Ambassador. We're going to be taking a look today at Jesus throughout the Bible. And hopefully uh, we can see this morning that the entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. The whole thing. Now, I'm always excited to talk about Jesus, uh, and so today we're going to do that by going to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, go to Luke chapter 4. If you're not familiar with the Bible at all, our Bible has two testaments. The Old Testament is the story of God's chosen people, the Israelites, waiting for a Savior. The New Testament is the story of Jesus, that Savior, coming to earth. He lived, he ministered, he died, he rose from the dead. He went on to heaven. And then the rest of the New Testament is about how we live our lives and how we do church, how we do Christian community in light of that Savior, Jesus, coming. Now, the first four books of that New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are they tell the story of Jesus, his life, his ministry, and his death and resurrection. And we call them the Gospels. It just means the good news. This is the good news of Jesus. So hopefully you've had enough time to turn to Luke 4 in your Bibles. We're going to start at Luke 4, uh, verse 14. This interaction that Jesus had is so interesting to me. 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. I'm going to pause right there. The writer of the book of Luke Luke. Um, He wrote this book, Luke. He wrote also Acts, which is the next book in the Bible. And Luke was a Pentecostal to the core. This guy talked about the Holy Spirit just all the time. So if you're ever reading Luke or Acts, keep an eye open for that in the power of the Spirit. Very, very interesting. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and I want to pause there again. Uh, just to make sure you, you see what's going on here. Jesus goes to his home church. He's, all, he's ministering. He's doing cool stuff. He was in the wilderness for a time. He comes to, uh, back to his home church, and he's about He's handed some Old Testament scriptures. He's about to do the sermon this morning. (laughs) So he's going to read some Old Testament scriptures, and then he's going to teach on them, much like what's happening this morning. I'm sure he could do it a whole lot better. But uh, Jesus starts reading this passage from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. We'll talk about prophecy in a minute. But this is what Jesus was reading in front of people in the book of Luke from the book of Isaiah. Does that make sense? (laughs) All right, this is what he said. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's good stuff, right? There's some hooting hollering in that synagogue, I bet. (laughs) This is really interesting what happens next. Then he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture 
is fulfilled in your hearing. He says, today, this verse that I just read, this prophecy, this Old Testament description of a New Testament event is in the flesh before your very eyes. It's me. And that was a pretty radical statement for Jesus to make. But it brings us to our big idea this morning that I want you to replay in your head all day, all week, maybe forever. The entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. The whole thing. The entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to, uh, that you've given me the honor to steward your word, Father. And I pray that you anoint the words that come out of my mouth, that not one of them are mine, but that you have your hands all over it. I pray that not a single person walks out of this room without looking a little bit like, a little bit more like you this morning. It's in your precious name we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. The entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. If you don't believe me, I'm going to prove it to you right here this morning. So first of all, uh, we saw in that passage, we read from the Luke 4, and Jesus is reading from the book of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And these verses are describing the Messiah. I said the Old Testament was about Israelites, God's chosen people waiting for the Messiah. They talked about it all the time. Isaiah hinted at it. He, He prophesied about this coming Messiah. God has been laying the groundwork for Jesus since the very beginning. It's all there. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about this coming Messiah, describing this Messiah. They'll talk about what he's going to be like, um, the circumstances around his birth, some of the stuff he'll do in his ministry, his death, all kinds of specific details about the coming Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of those prophecies. That's how we know he was the one, because he checked every box in the Old Testament prophecy. Everything that was said in the Old Testament about the Messiah came to pass through Jesus. That's what's so amazing about what we're going to talk about this morning. Jesus was not a spur of the moment idea. God didn't like look down and say, man, they really messed things up. Uh, I better send the heavy artillery. Now, Jesus is the heavy artillery. He is heaven's champion. But he was plan A from the very beginning. After we messed it up, at least. (laughs) The entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. Let's get down to business. It's almost Christmas. So this morning, we're going to talk about three aspects surrounding Jesus' birth that are so, so important. I like to preach pretty. So we'll be talking about the prophecy, the parents, and the purpose. We got a a bit of a head start on the prophecy. Um, So I'm going to give you some more examples of prophecies in the Old Testament that prove the entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. If you're still not clear about this whole idea of prophecy, um, A a, a prophecy is simply something said in the Old Testament that tells the future. Something that describes, and not just the Old Testament, there's some in the New Testament too. Specifically, we're talking about the ones in the Old Testament that describe Jesus. But it can sound a little spooky, right? That we have a book that tells the future. Can we just admit that? (laughs) Right? And someone might hear you say that and say, why would you even believe what that book says about the future? Right? And I have, personally, I have a bunch of reasons that I trust our Bible, um, putting aside historical sacred process of the, the compilation of the Bible, constant archaeological confirmations about people and locations described in the Bible. I believe what that book says because the prophecies come true every time. They just do. We see it over and over and over again. Countless times we see a prophecy or prediction in the Old Testament come true in the New Testament. How many times do we have to see that before we believe it, right? How many times? The entire Bible 
is about Jesus and what he came to do. There's a lot of these Old Testament prophecies that are specifically about the coming Messiah that Jesus was the one to fulfill. God said, I'm going to send a Messiah and I'm going to change the game about sacrifice and salvation. All the rules are going to be different. (laughs) When Jesus comes, it's going to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I'm going to change everything. And we're going to zero in on a couple of those Old Testament uh, prophecies about the Messiah this morning. I'm going to highlight how Jesus fulfills them. So the first prophecy I want to talk about um, is all the way at the beginning. The entire Bible from cover to cover is about Jesus. And we're going to get pretty close to that first cover. So this first prophecy is in Genesis 3. And uh, I want to set you up with a little context. There's not a whole lot of context because we're very close to the beginning of times, right? (laughs) So Adam and Eve were created. They're put in this garden. They had one rule. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. There's one rule. There's repercussions if you mess up. There's one rule. Please don't do it. One restriction. So the serpent came. He deceived Adam and Eve, and they fell into temptation. God said there will be repercussions, and there were. So Adam and Eve, as a punishment for their disobedience, experienced separation from God. That's so foundational to how you see sin. It's a separation from you and God. Adam and Eve were punished before they were walking through the garden with God. They were communing with God. They had open communication with God. And when they sinned, it created separation between them and God. Genesis 3.15, God is handing out these punishments. And he says this to the serpent. I will put enmity, conflict, struggle, pain. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians would call this the proto-evangelium. Does that get anyone excited? No. It sounds like a word I shouldn't be able to understand. But uh, if you break it down, proto means first. Think prototype. Evangelium means the good news. Think evangelism. Proto-evangelium, the first gospel. This is the first one. The first prophecy that pointed to Jesus. Now, antagonism between um, humankind and snake kind is not something I have to explain, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know what? Many of you are very familiar. Um, I'll tell you what. My dad is not afraid of much, but he could qualify for the Olympics if there was a snake at the starting line. Uh, believe you me, he doesn't scream, he doesn't make a fuss, but he is fast, right? <laughs> and you you may uh, identify with that a little bit. Man and snake have always been at odds. And it all comes back to this. It all comes back to this moment in the garden. But God is really into symbolism. And that's why we take communion every month. He's really into symbols and what they mean. And and if you study the tabernacle, you'll see symbolism all over that stuff. Our enmity between mankind and snake kind is a symbol of ultimate good and ultimate evil. It's a symbol of the conflict between God and Satan. And we see it right here in this verse. There's enmity between you and the woman. Mankind and snake kind, but also your offspring and her offspring. That is Jesus and Satan. There is this huge symbolism here about ultimate good and ultimate evil. And Satan gets in a shot, right? We, we, we don't always acknowledge this. It says he'll strike your heel. Satan thought he won for three days. He saw the savior of the universe die on a cross, right? That's pretty crazy. He's like, I did it. I imagine he's like, I don't know how I did it, right? Like, <laughs> I thought he was the savior, right? So he's, so he's dead. I guess I won then. And three days later, he, he struck his heel all right. <laughs> but how you can compare a heel strike to crushing the head <laughs> of your enemy, right? 
Three days later, that's not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He defeated death and crushed the enemy's head. That's the end of the story. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The the whole thing, the entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. When you get a chance, read the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's, it's filled with prophecy about Jesus. Uh, read it slowly. Read it with some, some commentary because it's real thick. Um, but it's just filled with talking about this coming Messiah and Jesus fulfills every piece of it. So the next one we're going to look at is Isaiah 53, 5. And it says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. If you spend any time in church, you may have heard that phrase, by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed, right? And this prophecy says that when the Savior comes, he's going to be pierced, he's going to be punished for our sins and mistakes. He is going to suffer the punishment for our sins. And by his wounds, we are healed. So there's two pieces there. He's punished for our sins. We are healed because of his wounds. We are healed from that punishment. So he is the recipient of the punishment we deserve. We believe that Jesus came to earth and didn't commit a single sin his entire life. I can't go an hour, y'all, right? <laughs> like Jesus lived an entire life without sin and at the end of it was crucified. He became sin on that cross, even though he didn't experience sin a single time in his life. He was the one punished in my place. He suffered the punishment of all the world, of all the sin in all the world. Just like uh, when Adam and Eve messed up, there was separation from God. When we mess up, we deserve separation from God. But that second piece here, through Jesus' sacrifice, we're healed. Through the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, that we're reunited with God. Like Jesus' sacrifice is something we talk a lot about, and it's so, so deep. Jesus was crucified so that we could be reunited with God. And all we have to do is accept that gift, accept that sacrifice as the payment for our sin. And immediately you have access to God in this life and you spend eternity with him in the next life. That's pretty amazing. And sometimes it sounds too simple, <laughs> but sometimes, I mean, I think that we, we make the, the Christian life seem too easy and the Christian faith seem too hard. The Christian faith is easy. You know what I mean. <laughs> it's easy to accept the gift of salvation. You just say it. You just can, we're going to get, we'll get there. We'll get there. It's important to remember we didn't do anything to deserve it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his action on the cross, his sacrifice, and we are reunited with God. So that's one of many prophecies in Isaiah specifically that point to Jesus. And the last prophecy I want to look at is one of my favorites um, because it's just so, so specific. It's from Micah 5.2 and it says this, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. We know historically that Bethlehem was not a big deal. Bethlehem was not the big apple of the ancient Near East. Um, But this prophecy says that the Messiah, the savior of the universe is going to come out of this little tiny hick town. (laughs) You probably know where Jesus was born. We've been singing about it since Halloween. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy that the savior would be born in specifically in Bethlehem. Old Testament prophecies screamed Jesus long before he was even a thought of being born to man. He was a thought to man. Um, The people that led up to his birth are also really interesting. And so now we're going to look at the parents. Now, maybe this is just me, but I can't imagine I'm alone in this. Um, 
I'm a young teenager. I'm thinking like 11 or 12. I'm like, I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to bring out my Bible. and I'm going to read it finally. So I open it up. I'm like, you know, the New Testament talks about Jesus. I'll just start right at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew 1. So I open it up. Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Anenabadab, Abadadadab, who was the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. I don't know. S-A-L-M-O-N looks like salmon to me. And so close the Bible. Say, that's probably enough, right? forever. Like, that's enough. I'm going to stop there. Um, has anyone ever done this? Please tell me I'm not alone. You, uh, uh, a couple, there you go. Okay, good. That's brave. Here's the truth. While that may not be entertaining, <laughs> reading material, the genealogies of Jesus become really interesting when you start to recognize the names, when you start to realize who is put in there. And uh, Jesus actually has two different genealogies in the gospels. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 are both in there. And um, that may be, you know, confusing. They are a little contradictory, but, you know, just like you have two parents with two family trees, Jesus had the same thing. Um, Jesus had two parents, Mary and Joseph, and they ordered the 23andMe ancestry kit and they cotton swab. And that's where we get Matthew 1 and Luke 3. So let's ease into this. I know it's overwhelming. So we're going to ease into it by talking about Jesus' parents. Jesus was birthed by Mary and raised by her and her husband, Joseph. And like Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph were not exactly famous. <laughs> They're like TMZ, paparazzi, we're not following these guys around. Um, there are some names that you know that like you wish you didn't know. Like you know the name Kardashian. Like you know the Jenners and the Biebers and the Mannings and Britney Spears' birthday was yesterday, hey. So <laughs> you know these names even if you wish you didn't. Um, Mary and Joseph, you will not read about them in Us magazine. Not going to happen. <laughs> people didn't know about these people. They were regular people living extremely regular lives. And God chose Mary to birth the savior of the universe. That's pretty significant. And what's really cool is he does it over and over and over again. He chose Jacob. He chose David, who was the youngest of his brothers. He chose Moses, who was almost not born to begin with. Over and over again, God uses the unassuming to do the unimaginable. <laughs> over and over. Let me try it again, because that's a good line. I don't want to mess that word up. Over and over again, God uses the unassuming to do the unimaginable. <laughs> and all of those times that you see that over and over and over again in the Bible, every time is pointing to Jesus. The entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. The next person I'd like to look at is a little further up in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, if you look at the one in Matthew 1, you'll see the name Rahab. Now, most biblical scholars agree that this Rahab is the same Rahab from Joshua 2 in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to read the whole story for you, but Joshua was the man who led the Israelites into the promised land. And along this journey, God told Joshua, you're going to lead the Israelites to take the city of Jericho. Jericho was a big deal. They heard the Israelites were coming for them. They have these giant walls. They lock up the gates. But Joshua, before they locked up the gates, Joshua had sent a couple spies into Jericho to check some things out, see how things were going to go. And when they found out about the spies, they locked the gates and started looking for them. Luckily, uh, in Jericho, there's this woman named Rahab. 
And Rahab had heard about uh, the God of the Israelites. She heard about the parting of the waters and how they took on armies they shouldn't have been able to take. And she was like, I think I'm going to go with the winning side. They seem to have a little momentum going in here. Um, so Rahab hid the spies in her attic. And when the, the search parties came, she was like, I don't know. They were here before, and they're gone. I don't know what happened to them. So she protected these Israelite spies. And because of that valiant act, because of her protecting God's chosen people, she earned a spot in the lineage of Jesus. Now, here's the kicker. Rahab was not some nice lady from Jericho. <laughs> some of you know. <laughs> Rahab was a prostitute. She was low class. She was unclean. She was the worst of the worst in the city of Jericho. And God used her. That is some of the best redemption you're going to read about in the Bible. <laughs> That's from, from being a, a, the unclean, low-class prostitute to a line, in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's amazing. If he can do that for her to the point where she's in the lineage of Jesus, what about that sin that you've deemed unforgivable? That sin that you keep, that you think is too big or too bad, I have heard people say with their mouths, I have done too much for, for Jesus to love me. It just breaks my heart. That's not what this is about. There's no way you could have done too much. Read a little bit about some of the people in the Bible and what they did and how God used them. Redemption. God's all about redemption. That's another sermon, though, so we'll move on. Sarah, if you'd come play a little something for us. We got Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus. If you go back a little further, you get Rahab. But if you look at the genealogy in Luke 3, it gets traced all the way back to Adam. And this is really cool. Um, and it's another thing that's really interesting that shows us that Jesus was the plan from the very beginning because the entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. Now, we mentioned Adam earlier. You may have heard of him. He's the guy who was in the Garden of Eden and he sinned and he brought sin into the world. First Corinthians 14, 45 says this about Adam. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving Spirit. Now, the last Adam is a reference to Jesus. They're talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the second Adam. And don't miss this. Where the first Adam messed up, Jesus got it right. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Adam was tempted to sin. He gave in to temptation. In Matthew 4, you'll see Jesus tempted to sin, spoke to Satan, but overcame that temptation. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus was tempted just like you and I are tempted. We continually fail. We continually mess that up. But Jesus got it right. And listen, the whole Bible, the entire Bible is about Jesus and where he came, what he came to do. And Adam giving into temptation. Uh, Noah being the most righteous person in the world during the flood and then eventually falling morally. Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and then having a hissy fit, not allowed in the promised land. David called a man after God's own heart, committing adultery and murder. The prophets, some of their moral failures, their lack of trust in God. The entire Bible is crying out for someone to get it right. Over and over again, you see these, these characters, these heroes of the Bible, they get so close and they mess it up. The Bible is crying for someone to finally get it right. Enter Jesus, heaven's champion. Jesus got it right.
It's a really great segue into the purpose. This is the purpose of Jesus. Now, his purpose was huge. His purpose was significant. It was ginormous. But it's also easy to summarize because the entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. So there are a ton of different verses that we could use to cite Jesus' purpose. I'm going to go back to that verse in Luke that we were in where Jesus reads Isaiah 61. Luke 4, 18 and 19 says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So in a word, it's another P that fits nice into my sermon this morning. Jesus came to proclaim. What did Jesus come to proclaim? That's what's so significant. He came to proclaim good news, but not just good news, capital G, capital N, the good news for all of creation. This good news constantly brings life. Jesus brings healing to people physically and spiritually. He sets the captive free, both spiritually and physically. If you'd stand with us this morning, this last part is my favorite here. This is the last thing Jesus says about himself. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to an Old Testament custom called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee happened every 50 years or so. And uh, during this year, this was a significant year in their calendar. Every 50 years or so, slaves were released. Debts were forgiven. This was an, uh, an economic reset for the ancient Near East. The year of Jubilee. Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to bring the ultimate year of Jubilee. Where those who are enslaved to sin, he's setting them free. Where those who are indebted by sin, he's forgiven them. This is the ultimate year of Jubilee where Jesus came to change everything. The entire Bible even Old Testament customs that I've never heard of. The entire Bible is about Jesus and what Jesus came to do. What he came to do was turn the world upside down. He came to change everything. He came for you and for me. He came to die on a cross, raised from the dead three days later. He came to give us access to him in this life. And he came to make us rest assured that we can spend eternity with him in the next life. He came for you and for me. And if you would grant me this honor, I'd like to pray with you this morning. And I'm going to lead you in prayer, but there's nothing special about my specific words. I know some traditions will suggest that, but there's nothing special about the words that I'm going to use this morning. But the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord... And that he, that God sent him to be a sacrifice for you on the cross and he rose from the dead. If you confess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart, you're saved. And that's a big deal. That's why we're here this morning. Jesus is why we're here this morning. When you accept that sacrifice for sin, you have immediate access to Jesus. You have immediate access to God and you can know that the next life will be spent with him. So, All you have to do is repeat these words after me and mean them in your heart. All you have to do is mean it. It's that easy. Believe the words you're saying this morning. So let's pray. If you'd repeat after me. God, I believe in you. I believe that you sent 
your son to die for me. I believe that three days later, he defeated death and rose from the grave. And he came so I could be reunited with you. I know that I'm a sinner. And I accept Jesus as the sacrifice that paid for my sin. Thank you for adopting me into the kingdom and family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. And if one person in this room meant that prayer, then there's a party going on in heaven. Can we match that? Can we celebrate this morning? That's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. So that people are added to that family. Now, if you said that prayer for the very first time, I want to tell you you've made the best decision of your life. I want to congratulate you and celebrate with you. And I want you to know, please don't leave without hearing me say this. Don't walk out the door without telling somebody. It's so, so, so important. I'm going to put some of the discipleship in your hands this morning. Don't leave the room without telling somebody that you made that decision. Whether it's the person who brought you, somebody who smiled at you during the greeting, come tell me. I'd love to be a part of that journey with you. Just tell somebody that you made that decision. And all you have to do, we do this in, in Apex all the time. It's simple. It's easy. It's safe. Just say, I did it. You got to walk up to somebody and say, I did it. They're going to know that means you made a decision to accept Jesus as your savior. They're going to congratulate you. They're going to tell you you made the best decision ever. They're going to hug you. They're going to pray with you on the spot. And they're going to connect you to the family of God. That's your job, church, this morning. Anyone in this room would love to have that conversation with you. Just say, I did it. That's all you have to do. Listen, the entire Bible is about Jesus and what he came to do. The whole thing. And when you know that, I think it'll change the way you read the Bible. It'll change the way you hear sermons. It'll change the way you pray, the way you live your life. It'll change the way you see Jesus. Can I pray with you one more time this morning? Let's do it. Father, thank you so much. I thank you so much for the harvest in this room this morning, God. Those that have been added to your kingdom today, God, I thank you so much for bringing them into this family, God, for sending them here this morning. Father, I pray against any doubt that has undoubtedly already creeped into their mind, Father. I pray you block out lies. Protect what's between their ears, Father. Block out the lies. Surround them with truth. Surround them with people who are going to encourage them and, and breathe truth into that decision they made this morning and seal it as a decision that will change their life forever, Father. Help us as a church take good care of those people and give them the bravery to tell someone that they did it. Father, we thank you for a Bible that is all about your son, Jesus, all about this Messiah, so that our lives can be all about him. Help us to make our lives all about you, Jesus. We thank you for this morning, and I thank you that we can meet together in your name as as your body, your family, your kingdom, your church. It's in your precious and holy and wonderful, beautiful name we pray. Everybody said one more time. Amen. Amen. We love you, church. Thank you so much.